HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm one of HRN's interns, Nina Medvinskaya, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week's topic, the marriage of food and danger. Sometimes, danger lurks in the food that we eat. So instead of saying what is poisonous, I'd rather say what's not, because it's literally just the flesh and the fins. Food poisoning doesn't just threaten our bodies but it endangers our environment as well. The emissions of JBS, combined with the other top five meat companies, exceed the annual emissions of Exxon, Shell, or BP. For more, tune into this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today is the second installment um, about the World Resources Institute's recently released report titled Creating a Sustainable Food Future, a Menu of Solutions to Sustainably Feed More Than 9 Billion People by 2050. As we discussed in our previous episode, the report concluded that at current rates of consumption, food production will need to increase by 56% without expanding the world's existing agricultural land, and while reducing greenhouse gas emissions from farming by two-thirds. No small feat. Tim Searchinger, the report's lead author, is back on the line with me to continue our conversation about the changes we need to make to take on the challenges ahead. Tim, welcome back to the show. Happy to be back. Um, okay, so I, where we left off last time, um, we talked, uh, we, we alluded to the fact that we were going to talk about the role of women in particular um, in creating a sustainable food future because we have to fix everything. <laughs> we just have to do it all. <laughs> um, but yeah. So anyways, I was surprised as I was reading the report, I was surprised to learn that women make up the majority of agriculture workers in many developing countries. And so I'm wondering what the role specifically is of women in contributing to a more sustainable food future. Well, that's basically the key statistic. It kind of tells it all. Um, and the problem is that, as a general rule, women don't have women farmers don't have access to the same resources as men male farmers, and so they tend to be less productive, um, and they tend to 
They just had, don't have the inputs. Yeah. And so, and they also often don't have the property rights. Okay. Um, it varies a lot, but in many places they, they don't have the a title to their land. They, they don't have the right to pass it on, and therefore they can't uh, raise money by borrowing money based on their land. That's a problem for many male farmers as well, but even bigger problem for, for uh, women. So there's a broad consensus that new efforts have to be made to increase the resources and the rights available for women farmers. Mm-hmm. And that's basically the story right there. And it varies from place to place. And um, you can think of this also as the effort to improve agricultural production requires a leave-no-farmer-behind strategy. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, this is a category. The, the other kind of interesting variable here is if you then want to just focus on the environmental issues, a lot of the greatest opportunities to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and land use demands for each unit of food uh, come in uh, through smaller farmers who have been denied re- these kinds of resources in the past. And this, even if you wanted to, there is no strategy Realistically, that involves kind of clearing off small farmers, and it's also not the case that small farmers are necessarily less productive. Uh, in India and China and Africa, there's a long history actually where smaller farmers are often more productive than at least medium-sized farms. What is what a smaller farmer? What constitutes a small? Well, that's farm? a great question, and there's no clear answer for that. And the reason there's no clear answer for that is that farm sizes vary a lot from place to place in part based on the productivity of land. So a five-acre farm uh, would be, a, or ten-acre farm would probably be a, often a small farm in Latin America, but that would be a pretty decent-sized farm in China and, and India. So often we're talking about in Africa, India, and China, we're talking about, uh, you know, a four acres or less, five acres or wow. less. Wow, okay, really small then. Really small. What about yeah, in no, the these U.S.? Are small. Yeah, what about in the U.S.? Uh, I wouldn't even... Uh, hazard a guess. I mean, farms in the U.S., uh, the basic story is that most farms in the U.S., or most of the production in the U.S. comes from much, much larger farms. Right. Um, and, but the acreage, again, varies a lot from place to place, depending on what, what kind of farming you're doing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're typically a, a typical uh, major commercial farm which is kind of dominating in the Corn Belt nowadays, will be certainly well over 1,000 acres, often five, 10,000 yeah. acres. Yeah. And, and so, um, and that would also be true. Well, you, but again, in um, California, where you're growing things that are very intensive vegetables, you know, a 500-acre farm is a pretty big farm with worth a lot of money, and so pr- producing a lot of food. So it varies a lot depending on the type of farming you're doing. Yeah. But, but the basic rule is that we we have to pay attention to smaller farmers uh, because that's where a lot of the hunger is, but also where a lot of the opportunities for productivity gains are. Uh, and um, and the um, so that's part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And you, one of the things that was written was that raising women's income has a disproportionate has disproportionate benefits for alleviating hunger. Why is this, and what is unique about women in this situation? Well, unfortunately, I think the real reason for that is simple, which is that women are more likely to devote their income to uh, children. Yeah. So 
that's just the reality in much of the world that uh, if you can raise women's uh, income, you can make sure that more of that income is passed on to children. Hmm. Um, okay, so in terms of, and sticking with the questions about women in agriculture, um, one of the things that you cover in this report, which I, I haven't seen covered in a lot of other kind of um, similar reports, is the, the role of fertility and specifically the, the role of reducing population growth. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, why, why that was included in this report and how it will affect climate change down the line? Yeah, so we wanted to focus on all realistic strategies for holding down uh, the demand for f- the growth of the demand for food. Mm-hmm. And particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, that's kind of the epicenter of the challenge, not only of the hunger challenge, it's um, maybe 40% of the world's hungry and the highest rates of hunger in general, uh, but also because their yields are low in sub-Saharan Africa. And so in addition to this importance of producing enough food for everyone, it's important to produce enough food on every um, acre of land so that you don't clear large enough quantities of forest. And also that's where you have a lot of the worst biodiversity effects of that clearing. So there's, a, there's all kinds of reasons that you want to deal with population there. Now the unknown story by many, although it's, it's known by any demographer really, uh, is that in almost everywhere in the world, fertility rates, the number of children per mother have gotten close to replacement levels or even below replacement levels, which are usually you know, more or less two children, but usually 2.1 uh, children per, per mother. Mm-hmm. And we are going to continue to have population growth in Asia, not because their fertility rates are so high now, but because once you have the children, which happened not too long ago, those children age and they have children, and more or less the population kind of thickens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're going to billion more people or so in Asia. But in sub-Saharan Africa, you still have about five children uh, per mother. In, and that means, Sorry to interrupt. By Asia, does you mean India and China combined? Yeah, all, all of okay. Asia. Okay. okay. All of Asia, yeah. yeah. And India still has a little bit above replacement levels. Uh, China is below... Um, so, but more or less, India is on the path, mm-hmm. and uh, so um, there's really short of just going around killing people. <laughs> you can't really do anything to right. prevent That's the population terrible. from growing yeah. in Asia. Okay, yeah. But but in in um, in sub-Saharan Africa, you still have about five children per mother right wow. now, and the population. Uh, even in the time we've been working on the report, has gone from about 600 million to 800 million. And it's going to go to 2.2 billion by 2050 and could reach 4 billion by 2100 or even uh-huh. bigger. And um, the, the good news is this. The good news is that in every other country, women and families have decided to reduce their fertility rates voluntarily when given the chance if three things happen. One is you educate girls, at least kind of early high school. The second is you keep uh, babies alive, infants alive, so that people don't feel that they have to overcompensate uh, to have the number of children they want by having more. Mm -hmm. And the third is you provide access to family planning, which eventually gives people the choice to have the the size of families they want. Now, every country in the world that's done these three things has had huge reductions in fertility rates. 
of every possible religion, and that includes very poor countries like Peru and Bangladesh. It includes Catholic countries, which include those two. It includes um, Muslim countries. Uh, Iran had a huge decline in fertility rates. And so these three things, of course, are all really good things to do anyway, right. in their own right. Yeah. And so if we can do those three things, if the world can help Africa to do those three things, uh, there would be enormous benefits. And then we all we did, this is kind of well-known, uh, and we did this kind of added step of quantifying what that would mean uh, if for food and greenhouse gas emissions. And it would have a huge effect on the uh, amount of uh, additional uh, land we would have to clear. Uh, just that, that act alone. For, so we, 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 we tested a scenario where uh, fertility rates in sub-Saharan Africa went down to replacement levels steadily between now and 2050. And what we essentially found was that the amount of land that would be cleared there would be cut in half, um, the greenhouse gas emission growth would be greatly reduced. We got about 20% or so of our target in terms of reducing land area, a little less than that, but close to that, just by reducing these fertility rates. And then the, the last thing is that countries that do quickly reduce their uh, fertility rates tend to also have an economic dividend because mm -hmm. instead of spending huge resources educating children, building new roads and schools just to keep up uh, with the demand, uh, you can instead have a higher percentage in their reproductive years and your money can go into building additional infrastructure per person rather than just maintaining what you've got. And so this is a real, this would be something that a rational world would do. And right. what we just highlighted is actually the greenhouse gas, the climate benefits for the, for the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, if we help, essentially, Africa is still remarkably poor. Uh, and uh, to have the resources to be able to do that would be an enormous uh, improvement for all of us. Is that something that's like currently under, are some of these interventions currently underway in Africa in terms of, um, you know, population reduction or, or like a replacement for fertility levels? Or is this something well, that's kind of like uncharted territory in that region? Yeah, well, it, it, people have been talking about population growth for a long time. People have been talking right. about education for a long time. There, there are, uh, in some countries in Africa, there have been uh, reductions. Uh, Botswana is a great success story in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, and they also have very good governance. Uh, so it's hardly, we're hardly the first people to talk about uh, these issues. And uh, well, we're really, and there are, and there are efforts. It's just not enough. And in mm -hmm. fact, a lot of the, for example, um, we, the world population is now likely to be 10 billion. When we actually started first focusing on the study, it was closer to 9 billion. And the main reason demographers have adjusted their estimates have to do with the slower rate of decline in fertility in sub-Saharan Africa than they expected. And so that's Fertility rates in that region are extremely important. And mo almost every uh, government in sub-Saharan Africa has expressed a desire to um, reduce population growth. So it's not even a political debate. It's really a question of mustering the, the resources and the governance to be able to do that. Yeah.
Um, before switching gears here, so we talked a lot in the last episode about um, one of the major recommendations of the report, which is the need to curtail growth into the, the demand for food. Um, and one of the things I wanted to get back to, which we didn't cover, um, that was kind of within this section is food waste. And, you know, it's an estimated that, what, one third of the food produced globally is wasted. Um, and it accounts for like an enormous amount of annual losses. But can you just kind of talk to us, you know, tell me a little bit more broadly about this issue and um, to what extent reducing food waste would contribute to a more sustainable system? Yeah, so depending on how you measure food waste, it's about a, the best estimates are it's about a third by weight and about a quarter by calories of mm -hmm. all the food is either lost or wasted somewhere along the way. Now, some of that food intended for people probably is consumed by animals, so it's not 100% wasted, but a lot is not even 100% wasted. And so this is, uh, and, and, and the, the source of the waste or loss varies from country to country. In the United States, most of our waste occurs either at the retail or consumption stage. We have enormous waste. We don't have to get into the people's homes. Mm -hmm. In poorer countries, uh, almost all the waste occurs even in the harvesting process and storage processes uh, before and maybe kind of processing it, although there's very little processing, so before people have a chance to consume it. And so the, the challenge is that as countries develop, you tend to get less waste early in the process, but more waste later in the process. Right. So what do you, what do, you do about it? Um, so in countries like the United States, the, the techniques that people have come up with are kind of nudges in one way. So, for example, um, if you go through, if you don't provide trays but only plates in cafeterias, people will tend not to take more food than they actually intend to consume. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the country that has done the most effort to try and deal with food loss and waste uh, in the developed world is uh, the UK. And they've had kind of major programs to measure things properly. And they've been able to make progress by doing things like changing, confusing uh, expiration dates. Right yeah. now, it's common that people have a sell-by date, a best-by date yeah. and an expiration date. And so a lot of people are concerned and they start throwing things out a lot earlier than uh, they need to. Uh, um, you know, I have a constant battle with my wife on whether or not something needs to be yeah. thrown out or not. Uh, and well, so, so they're not regulated, right? And, and none of those labels, except for those on baby food, really, you know, have any kind of like support or regulation behind them. So. Right. And they confuse people, right? Oh, so yeah. So you see yeah. all these multiple dates, and so the idea is to just have one date, basically. Yeah, that means uh, something. And, <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, in, in the U.K., this wonderful um, uh, nonprofit semi-government uh, group was set up to, to do real measurements, and they've been able to show that there's an undue amount of waste due to kind of strange processing or contracting arrangements where uh, retail companies would be have the right to uh, cancel orders at any time so that uh, people uh, in the processing business or people deliver in the process of delivering food to them would all of a sudden find out that they have 
uh, an order they can't sell. And this seems like a strange contracting arrangement to have developed, but it had. And they also discovered that uh, many retail operations were not really keeping track of their food as well as you would think. And so in one case, I remember an example was given to me that when food was taken, uh, uh, when bread or other things were taken uh, from um, the main area and put in kind of the promotional area, 25% off if you buy, that was counted uh, by the system as actually as though it had been sold. And so they would order more yeah. <laughs> for this very good. So yeah. there are certainly examples of this. And, uh, and then in developing countries, there are examples of very low-cost storage technologies that could probably get more into operation. So the, the problem is that the, 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 the sources of this are so um, varied mm-hmm. and diffuse that uh, the remedies that we essentially have been able to come up with so far I mean, there are lots of remedies, right? There's, there's no, you can always do various things technically. The question is, how do you make it happen? It's not as though people pay no attention to this at all. Mm-hmm. If they paid no attention to it at all, then they wouldn't consume anything, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so, um, so the, 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 the part of it has been just to have all the various institutions try to set targets and then measure properly how much is really being uh, lost or wasted, and then by figuring out where it is to kind of improve things along the production line or the selling line. So, so this has actually been somewhat successful, as I said, in the UK. Um, so that's the good news, and, right. we, and it's, it's to get people more conscious of this and more focused which, in these strategies. And it seems like there, you know, there's been a lot of talk about food waste, at least in the U.S., and, and how much of a problem it is. It's just getting people, it, it seems like, to action it in the developed countries and then helping the developing nations with the infrastructural challenges, overcome those challenges. Right. It's, That's it's, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And now, having said that, it's, it's, it's also possible to treat the elimination of food waste as, as kind of a magic asterisk. Well, why don't we just you know, get rid of it all? <laughs> and that's when you actually have to start thinking seriously about the fact that this 25% or so of waste occurs in many steps. Mm-hmm. So it may occur through a little bit being lost at the harvest stage, a little bit at the storage stage, a little bit at the processing stage by multiple entities or people. So each step in the process may only be losing 5% as a whole, right. and, or on average. So that makes it look like... Not as much of a problem. It, not as much of a problem or a little harder solution, because if you're only losing 5%, you make a big effort to try and get it down to 2.5%, right, or 2% or 3%, right? It's, a, it's, it's not as easy to solve as it may look when you just say 25%. So, so, so here is where I do think that technology has a role to play. I mean, if we, if we really want to have, um, well, well, just let me one one quick sure. question first. So, is the idea that you're you're losing so much, so many calories, or you know, so much food that could be redistributed um, in a way that is more efficient and that could feed more people? Or, I mean, what is the role of like the release of methane that's emitted from food waste when it's improperly disposed of on? climate change. Should you look at that yeah. as well? Yeah, the real, the real number isn't that. The real number is if you, if you waste 25% of the food, you have to produce uh, 
uh, 33% more food, actually. It's not just 25%, it's 33% more food. Why is that? And, oh, because there's waste. Because you're right, you're wasting 25% of something, right? Okay, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. You're right, right. And uh, so, um, uh, if I get that right, anyway, I'll have to go back and think about it. Well, that. yeah, but the, <laughs> yeah. the, but the idea, point is you're wasting, yeah. you have to put all that effort into producing into producing food. Okay. And more food. So there is some waste at the, at the downside end, or some emissions, but that's the real issue is more land, more water, more emissions. Okay, and, got it. And, and so, um, and it adds up to a lot. You know, it's, I think it's, uh, if, if food waste would be the, uh, by itself, is the fourth largest emitting country in the world if it were a country. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a big deal. But on the other hand, it's not just that easy to solve. Mm-hmm. That's why you have to measure it properly so you know where the, where the hot spots of waste are that yeah. you could really focus on. But that's also where I think um, Technology. this is an example of the innovation. Yeah. So I, I, one of the more exciting things I saw of the course of working on this report was a presentation by this company in California called Appeal uh, something or other Appeal sprays, or so. and they make an organic spray that they are spraying on vegetables using kind of uh, modern technologies that are now available to kind of figure these things out that didn't used to be uh, available. And these sprays can maintain vegetables and fruits three or four weeks or even longer. Uh, longer than they would otherwise would even without refrigeration. And, and now they have a market for this because um, you could then have the hope of being able to pick completely ripe tomatoes and sending them ripe and boom preserving instead of picking unripe tomatoes. But these same technologies uh, could be the kinds of technologies that are uh, easily available, cheaply available in, uh, to people in countries who don't have refrigeration. Uh, and, yeah. and then similarly... It might, hopefully, would be the case that in the, in the U.S., uh, you'd actually use your vegetables and fruit uh, all in time before selling them out if they stayed longer right. fresh. So the thing is that technology does have a role to play uh, as well. If we're really, if you want to get to, to the most ambitious targets, you have to think about doing things that change people's incentives, and if you if you, you know, basically things stay fresh longer, uh, then hopefully you'll have less waste. You know, one of the things that comes to mind is we have seen a slow shift in the desire to um, eat real food, you know, like eat locally, know your food, know your farmer. And the idea that we're going to like kind of create a spray to go on vegetables so they're going to last like forever sort of like flies in the face kind of of this sort of of this like natural organic local movement, however you want to describe it. I mean, we can talk about how like an apple, for instance, can stay in transit for like what, like nine plus months. And then when you get it, it's it's like covered in wax and it's a big ball of sugar and the nutrient decline. So I'm just I'm trying to kind of like weigh these two opposing um, standpoints or, or viewpoints because they both seem like things that we kind of need to do, but it, it, there's just some like contradiction there. Well, so uh, the best reason to consume locally produced food is because it will often taste better right? and, and be potentially have maintain more of its nutrition. Um, uh, but for the va- for almost all, shoot, I have to switch phones. I'm afraid. Yeah, uh, for almost all of us, uh, the chance of eating 
more than a small percentage of our food produced locally uh, is very low or all but impossible. Uh, and if you live in a cold area, you're not going to be consuming local fruits and vegetables, or at least uh, except for a tiny number, uh, in much of the year. So even the best case scenario. And that's only fruits and vegetables. The vast majority of your other food is going to come from where it is most efficiently produced. Yeah. So even even the even the most um, active locavore, uh, except in very few pl- number of places, is not going to be able to consume uh, a lot of food that is produced locally. Mm-hmm. So regardless, in other words, of what you do with that, but but from a from a total environmental factor, uh, the location of where food is produced is generally not that big a deal. The the amount of greenhouse gas emissions involved in transport is actually a small share of the total greenhouse gas emissions from agricultural production. That's and sorry, I keep on interrupting you, but that's like a huge point that I think it should be emphasized because a lot of times when people talk about eating locally, they the assumption is or the thought is that it's like more environmentally friendly because food has to travel less distance. But you're saying that that's not in fact true. It's generally it, it it can be true, but it's generally not true. Once mm-hmm. you get food on a in a uh, big and, boat or a big yeah. train, it doesn't take a lot of energy, uh, and right. um, you know it's certainly true if you're flying vegetables, mm-hmm. uh, and you're going to have a lot of emissions associated with the flying. Uh, but as a whole, it's not necessarily true. A lot of the emissions from transport are based on trucking. So if you're trucking a very short distance. That's great, but if you're trucking even a slightly longer distance, it's more. But as a whole, energy use mm-hmm. in agriculture is not the biggest source of emissions. Mm. I think people think that this is where people think that the only real greenhouse gas emissions come from energy use. Yeah. And in fact, the big sources of emissions are really, first of all, that we're using land. Yeah. So all that land, every acre of land, well, not every, but most acres of land that you're using to produce food, are acres that would otherwise be storing a lot more carbon if you weren't using that land. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, most of our best agricultural land uh, is originally forest or it was grassland that was plowed up, which causes enormous uh, carbon to be released from that land, and we're continuing to do that. And so as a result, the f- there is a real cost to each acre of land that's devoted, and that's inherent, and that's why... One of the benefits is producing food on less land. And the, and the second is that we have this large source of emissions that come from these trace gases. They're called trace gases because they are, get emitted in very small amounts, but they're extremely potent, and, and that's methane and nitrous oxide. Mm-hmm. And agriculture is a major source of both, uh, and it, they both come from microorganisms. And, uh, and they both actually tend to be occur when you have... Uh, uh, my, uh, environments that are a little bit deprived of oxygen because of uh, saturated conditions, like in a cow's stomach or in rice paddies, mm-hmm. um, and so unfortunately they're kind of they just tend to happen, and we have to deal with. There are management practices that can reduce that. So you know, for example, in fertilizer use, which people do are aware of. So one source of emissions with fertilizer is the fact that it does take a lot of energy to produce nitrogen fertilizer in particular. Uh, 
And for the future, we need to shift from using fossil fuels to using um, uh, solar uh, electricity, solar generated electricity. Mm-hmm. And there are techniques that people are working on. There are techniques that are available today. And actually, this is an example of where governments need to be pushing plants right now to start shifting to that process. And also, they are putting money into the generation of hydrogen using uh, solar power. And that actually would go about 85% of the way to dealing with the emissions associated with producing nitrogen fertilizer. But that's only, at most, half of the emissions. The other half of the emissions come from the fact that once you have nitrogen in the soils, uh, some of it turns into this potent greenhouse gas, nitrous oxide. And unfortunately, that's not just nitrogen fertilizer. That's also nitrogen from manure, even nitrogen that gets uh, fixed by plants and left uh, will also turn into nitrous oxide. So one of the challenges is uh, avoiding that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, finding ways so it less turns into nitrous oxide, and becoming much more efficient with our use of nitrogen. Less than half, probably more like 40% of all the nitrogen applied to crops is um, actually used by the crop and turned into food. 60% is lost to the environment. And that's a big source of water pollution and air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. So the good news is that we have uh, opportunities to reduce that. Um, Some of them are simply farmers being uh, more careful about when they apply their fertilizer, applying it more carefully. But there's a limit to that because once you apply nitrogen, uh, it has a tendency to turn into forms where it, it tends to get lost. And if you literally went out and applied nitrogen five times a year, you could be very, very efficient, but that's pretty expensive. Yeah. So, so, however, the good news is that there are forms of fertilizer that inhibit the losses of nitrogen, uh, and they're very little used. And almost no money is put into further developing them. Yeah. And this is an example where for government regulation to actually require that fertilizer companies sell increasing percentages of their fertilizer with in these compound forms that actually are more efficiently used. And that would provide an incentive for them to also innovate and develop even better methods. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot that could be and needs to be done from like a regulation standpoint, not only in terms of like funding, but in in fostering these kinds of, in encouraging companies to foster these um, innovations. Unfortunately, we do not currently live um, in a country with an administration that shares that same view in terms of its importance, which is a real bummer. But um, hopefully there are other governments that are a little bit more progressive from that standpoint that can kind of help move the needle. Um, Okay, so we're going to take a really quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, I want to talk about the role of aquaculture in creating a more sustainable food system. So stay tuned. Next year, Heritage Radio Network is turning 10. For the last decade, we've been committed to bringing listeners around the world the very best in food radio for free. Our small staff and incredible network of hosts work hard so that listeners can tune in each week to hear the important conversations in food policy, stay on the cutting edge of cocktail culture, and hear the latest updates in food tech. But there is no HRN without the support of listeners like you. 
Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and help HRN get a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. There's no better time to show your support. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and wish HRN a happy birthday. And we're back on Eating Matters, where I'm speaking with Tim Searchinger, lead author of Creating a Sustainable Food Future, a menu of solutions to sustainably feed more than 9 million people by 2050. Okay, so there's a whole um, chapter, or not, not really chapter, but um, section of the report. Chapter would, would be underselling it for the depth and the scope of this report. Um, um, section talking about the need to increase um, fish supplies, and you talk about aquaculture in specifically, but can you kind of just broadly tell us in broad terms what's the role of fish in our future food system? Yeah, so f- fish as a global source of calories are, are not that high or even as a source of protein, but they are, um, uh, can be a significant uh, part of animal products, particularly in the developing world and particularly in Asia. Uh, so as much as we like fish, we actually don't consume, rely on it as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it can be 15, 20%, and even for many poor people, the dominant source of animal food products. So that's uh, one reason they're important. And of course, when fish can have high nutritional qualities due to the uh, type of fats that they that they have. Mm-hmm. So that's the good news and why fish are important. Now the, the, the challenge is that we have essentially we are overfishing uh, the ocean and freshwater fish as well. There really is no additional more or less no additional amount of fish we're going to get from the ocean. We probably even have to reduce it by 10% in the wildest possible. If we had perfect management, we'd roughly be where we are today. And so for the last 20 years or so, there has been no increase in fish available from the ocean. Uh, and all of that fish supply, additional fish supply, has come from aquaculture, which also means that if you want to uh, increase uh, uh, fish supply by even... 50% or so, just to keep its present level today, you actually have to double production from aquaculture. So mm-hmm. aqua is about half of fish supply today, and since you're not going to get any more for the ocean, <laughs> you, you work it out the math and basically have to double the production from aquaculture. Is that like a, a hard and fast rule, like no more, we're never going to yeah. get any more uh, fish out of the ocean? At like uh, an, no an, an more wild caught fish out of the ocean. That's basically yeah. I no mean, matter what we argue do. about. Yeah, people. Some people may claim that if you had perfect management, you might be able to get ten percent more. Uh, many people think that basically you can't. You, we need to be at least ten percent less than what we've got today, even with perfect management, and you'd have to have lower than that for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then actually, global warming is a big threat too for fish supply. So yeah, more or less. That's a detail. It's important. The danger is, frankly, that we continue to overfish and we get a lot fewer fish from the ocean. Right. So all the additional fish that we're going to eat is going to have to come from aquaculture. And aquacul- now, some of that might be in the ocean, but yeah. one way or another, it's going to be farmed, farmed, farmed fish. Aquaculture gets a bad rap, and I, um, you know, I think that there have been instances in the past where it's had adverse environmental effects. Um, what have some of these been, and how have they been mitigated, if they have been? Yeah, well, it does have a lot of environmental effects. 
Um, first of all, all agriculture has environmental effects, so of course aquaculture will too. Uh, some of the biggest concerns have been clearing of mangroves along the coast to do shrimp uh, production, particularly in Asia. Mangroves are these extremely valuable kind of strange woody wetlands that are big nursery grounds for fish and hold shorelines in place. And that used to happen at a very high rate uh, throughout many parts of Southeast Asia. It has been slowed down, but it's still happening in some places. Um, Another big problem with uh, aquaculture has been the release of uh, farm-raised fish in lakes and rivers where they replace native fish. So all of those are particular concerns and sometimes carrying disease. Is that, yeah, well, I was going to say, why, why is that a concern if they release it into the Because they, those fish multiply and they replace the, the, the native fish. So you lose, you lose, you lose your native fish okay. frequently, okay. or a lot of them, or most of them. Uh, and uh, those species and the whole ecosystems, basically. Okay. And then on top of that, um, you can have diseases from them. And also, aquaculture has uh, relied very heavily on uh, wild-caught fish. So uh, a lot of, uh, you know, for, even though you may be avoiding catching a fish to eat by people, you actually, in many cases, are actually feeding uh, farm-raised fish, wild-caught fish, even of a higher quantity than what you get out of it. So there are really? a lot of issues. Yeah, yeah, that was certainly true of salmon. Has been true of, uh, of salmon in, in the past. It's, it's, but it's gotten a lot more efficient. They're fed salmon. Did I get that right? So no, salmon are fed other types of wild-caught fish. Oh, okay, all right. Curious. And and so, and in fact, so one of the um, so again. And, and they actually use, but most aquaculture is in Asia. Ninety percent or so of aquaculture is in Asia in relatively extensive ponds, uh, raising carp. Believe it or not, is is kind of the biggest single uh, source of of aquaculture. And uh, so we have aquaculture that we're all familiar with, which is most of our salmon, for example, uh, comes from from aquaculture and increasingly mussels and things like that. Uh, but most aquaculture has still been in Asia. But it's important. It's growing in importance all, all over the place. And the basic story there is we have to do the same kind of thing, which is sustainable intensification. You have to, uh, you have, to have um, ponds where you recirculate the water instead of just flushing it through one time and probably filter it uh, and... And they also uh, will need to rely on an alternative to wild-caught fish. And the key thing they need is, uh, is an oil that's the equivalent of fish oil. And so this is either going to have to come from uh, algae. Uh, oh, fish oil ultimately is actually produced by algae that's hmm. ingested, ingested by fish. And so you can uh, engineer algae to, produce, uh, to grow well and produce that oil. Uh, and produce other feed, and there's also a potential to uh, to get fish oil from um, canola plant. Ah. There's a there's a kind of an engineered canola plant in Australia that is producing that, and maybe some soy too. So so these are innovations that are going to have to that are going to have to happen, and but also better disease control. Um, and better breeding and all kinds of things like that. And some forms of aquaculture can really be the, the closest thing we probably can get to uh, kind of uh, environmentally free uh, food would be something like mussels. 
because muscles are filter feeders. Yeah. And so you're not feeding them anything, and you're eating the muscles. Now, there's a certain amount of energy involved right now in producing producing uh, muscles, but there certainly are opportunities to make a lot of uh, progress in aquaculture. I, I guess I should have asked at the start, you know, what, we talk about aquaculture like it's, as, you know, it's a, it's a broad name for something that has many different forms. So when you're talking about the type of aquaculture we need uh, moving forward, is that, you know, deep water aquaculture? Is that um, off the coastline? Is that inland? And what are the, what are the differences and the pros and cons of kind of each of those? Yeah. Well, it's kind of all of the above. Uh, most aquaculture uh, comes from these shallow ponds that are used to raise primarily carp and, uh, in, in Asia. So that's sheer, from the sheer quantity. Uh, like inland, and, then? They're, they're inland. Ponds. inland. Okay. So these are yeah. ponds, that's right, that many of which were probably former rice paddies that converted into aquaculture ponds. But there is uh, other aquaculture is grown in lakes. That's less uh, desirable. Uh, some aquaculture is grown in concrete ponds, you know, fake ponds, basically, that are on farms. And some can even be grown in factories. And then there is aquaculture that's grown in the near ocean. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, including, um, so so or, so so salmon tend to be raised in nets in kind of near shore waters, in, in Nor- particularly in Norway and, and mm-hmm. uh, Chile, for example. So there's a huge range of forms of aquaculture, and um, you know if again if you if all you cared about was the environment. Uh, you wouldn't have any, <laughs> just like yeah. you wouldn't have any food. Really. You wouldn't, you know, all human food consumption has an environmental cost. However, aquaculture is a pretty uh, efficient way of producing uh, animal-based food that people want uh, from feed. Mm-hmm. It's roughly the same as efficiency as chicken, which is also pretty efficient. Mm-hmm. It does have some, can have some health benefits, and people want it. Yeah. And so... The, the the goal is to do it in, in the best possible ways. And there's an opportunity, I think, for a lot of progress here. Um, uh, it's, still a, it's also still a pretty young uh, industry in a way. I mean, it's obviously always been around in some form, but the kind of effort to do things in modern ways is, um, is pretty recent. So there's a lot of opportunity. But again, it's got to be done right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so one thing you need to do is you need to have good land use planning or, or, or even ocean planning. If you let too many uh, uh, fish uh, be grown in the same general area, you tend to get huge disease problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, the salmon in uh, Norway are, are right now subject to uh, something called sea lice, which is a huge problem, yes. and that then spreads from them to wild salmon. So there, there is a, it's like all forms of food production, these things are challenging. We need to have some... Um, appropriate regulation. But part of what needs to happen is uh, there needs to really be this focus on what we call sustainable intensification. And so in in most of of the world, that means you need to have recirculating ponds instead of just once through water ponds, shallow ponds. And you need to have the feed is going to have to come instead of coming from wild-caught fish it's going to have to come, as I said, from other sources like from, canola, from plant, from plant sources, canola yeah. or algae. Yeah. Should we just be eating vegetables? Like, I mean, 
is that the main point of this <laughs> of everything? Well, well if you if yeah, so I mean, in, yes, if, if if vegans are correct that they are doing something that is a lot environmentally preferable to the rest of us who who eat animal-based foods. Mm-hmm. But I still eat animal-based foods, too, because, yeah. I, you know, you like them. Right. Uh, it's pretty hard to give up. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and even dairy actually has, uh, you know, a fairly so, pretty high uh, land use and, and emissions associated with that. So I think the, I think the, the you know, realistically, uh, you know, but this is true of, you know, it's not just food. It's, you know, we drive our car, we, you know, we have our home. Yeah. Well, you know, human beings have costs on the environment. Yeah. And the question is, not to walk around feeling guilty about it all the time, but trying to be kind of reasonable about it. And so in the case of animal-based foods, we need to try and reduce that somewhat. But then, as I said, it turns out from a purely global land and greenhouse gas, the real opportunity is to reduce our consumption of beef, lamb, and goat meat, I mean, ruminant meat. And that's not something people really fully understand. And and that is a very realistic opportunity, I think. Uh, And I think it will become more and more realistic. I also think that actually, you know, there there are a couple of companies trying to make um, milk that is based on kind of yeast uh, production, having the yeast produce the proteins that go into milk. Now, there are only a couple, and they haven't quite made it yet. Uh, and uh, I don't think they'll ever make the milk that you want to drink at home uh, in liquid form or good cheese, but they might very well be able to make milk that's good enough to turn into the kind of cheese that you eat on frozen food all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, a type of innovation that, that we need to encourage. So a lot of opportunities. Um, one, okay, we're going to have to wrap up in a minute, but I just have been wondering, in the many years that you've been, you know, that you have been involved in the writing of this report and all of your, you know, extensive professional experience, is there one thing that you kind of came across, one fact, one, um, you know, specific point that really surprised you, that took you aback? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh think about that for a moment. Yeah. I mean, I imagine a lot of these concepts are not new to you. <laughs> no, but it's a great question because there certainly were things that hit me, um, you know, over time as we were working on them. I'm just trying to remember my kind of course of discovery. Yeah. Uh, and I, th- I think that... Um, I, I do think this fact, and I, I'm sorry to repeat myself, no, but that, no. that ruminant meat is such a small part of our food, but such a huge part of our land use and emissions. Yeah. That really surprised me even when I uh, generated, when we, we kind of did that calculation, which wasn't all that hard to do. Um, and um, so I think that's that's one. Yeah. Um, the... Uh, I guess at this point, I'm having a hard time differentiating all the different facts, although it's a great question. I'll have to think about it for the next time. Yes, no, definitely. And um, that's something that, you know, when you do think of something, we can definitely put up on our our social feeds because I'm sure a lot of people, you know, from the experts themselves, um, like this whole everything about what we talked about is kind of shocking to me, even the the percent to which we need to double our food production. so it's, you know, it's always fun, like the experts, like, what do you, uh, you know? So here's, here's, here's another thing that, uh, I mean, this isn't a single fact, but as, 
the thing that I just, as we look through all of the measures that we needed to do, the other thing that was surprising was how often there was some exciting opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, there's this tiny group of researchers who are almost all of them kind of somehow part-time fitting into their research, maybe 20 in the world, who are following up on a discovery 15 years ago that one variety of grass they discovered essentially has enormously efficient nitrogen use because it exudes a chemical from its roots that keeps nitrogen from turning into the form that tends to get lost to the environment. And they have since discovered that there are varieties of rice, wheat, and corn that also have these properties. So with literally a research budget of less than a million dollars a year, most people kind of doing in their sideline, uh, in their side time, 25 people in the whole world are following up on this opportunity that may be able to breed properties into our major foods that could dramatically increase the efficiency with which we use fertilizer and thereby allow us to feed the world while reducing this enormous nitrogen pollution we have in, in, in water and in the climate. So this is really exciting. I mean, a really small group getting almost no funding. Yeah. And so that is what tells you that part of the challenge we have is that people aren't paying enough attention to this. And you mentioned the fact that, that we don't have an administration today that's in favor of kind of any form of regulation. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is that we've... Uh, we pay so little. Our, our, I, I think our agricultural sector, for all the environmental challenges, is remarkably um, agile and productive. And uh, and but it's also so politically powerful that it has been able to, to kind of fend off even the most uh, reasonable, modest, and flexible regulations. Right. And so this is an example of where, for example, getting fertilizer companies to push them to uh, use improved technology. Well, that's not even on the agenda for kind of more most environmental people, people who don't uh, fight regulation, who are right, right. happy to have regulation. Yeah. So, you know, regard, the point is that until uh, the average American who cares about these issues, who cares about food issues, starts focusing on these things, we won't even have it under any administration. Yeah. Well, there's. Um, we're going to have to leave it there. It's a little bit of positive optimism, and um, combined with you know the real reality of our times, and hopefully a call to action for everybody to pay more attention to these issues and start demanding certain things from your food companies and your government. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show and um, these past two shows and really walking us through this report. It's a phenomenal, um, you know, job. And, uh, you know, I'm just thrilled that you were able to uh, walk us through it. <laughs> well, thanks so much. I hope I, hope I didn't uh, get too wonky. No, it was perfect. We love wonky on this show. Okay. <laughs> it was the right amount Great. of wonky. I love it. <laughs> thank okay. you well, so much. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, before we officially wrap up to our listeners, I want to, um, you know, just give a little shout out, a little 
reminder that um, we are in HRN's end of the year fund drive. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to keep this show, Eating Matters, on the air. So I would implore you to please become a member. Um, donate by becoming a member. You can do so at heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. And bonus, you'll be able to enjoy a lot of the benefits um, like VIP invitations to awesome HRN events um, where you can meet yours truly. Um, so yeah, so donate today. All right. Um, I want to give a big thanks for our to our current sponsors for their generous support, um, as well as to our engineer, the one and only Jeet Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. I'm Jenna Lee Ute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.